Hey, Bluntheads, welcome to Bluntcast number 16. This one features activist journalist defense attorney Michael Cord. Mr. Cord is the self-proclaimed angriest black man in America. We discussed with him the um, George Floyd protest here in Philly and around the world, the Frank Rizzo statue removal, which he was against. He wanted it to actually remain in place with some additions. He discusses his views on defunding the police, as well as offering some advice on what white folks can do to be part of the solution and where we go from here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook um, to see uh, when we're going live with these on our Facebook page. They're usually Friday nights. You can also check out the videos of these on our YouTube page. Um, they eventually get up there and uh, just search The Philly Blunt Podcast on YouTube and you should find it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Philly Blunt. My name's Johnny Goodtimes. I'm Reef. This is Greg. And we are extremely excited this Friday night to be hanging out with lawyer, journalist, renowned activist. The list goes on and on. Uh, according to his Twitter bio, the angriest black man in America, please welcome Mr. Michael Court. Thank you. Appreciate that, gentlemen. Appreciate that. And I don't even know where to begin. Um, uh, it's been a hell of a week in Philadelphia. Before you do, let me just say this. Nothing's off limits. Anything and everything you want to ask, usually I got to put on this, this pretense about being this strictly above board uh, professional lawyer and all that shit. But tonight, man, let's talk about anything and everything. All right, can I ask It's good that what Michael, knows, Michael knows that he's hanging out with some non-professionals. I appreciate that. <laughs> Before we get started, can I have your social security number, please? <laughs> <laughs> good one, very good one. <laughs> So uh, you were saying before we went on the air, you said you've had an absolutely crazy day. I'm sure you've had a crazy week. Uh, I mean, the last week has been, I mean, one of the most historic weeks in Philadelphia history and a lot of different levels. Um, can, can you just kind of run us through a little bit of some of the highlights yes. and lowlights of your past week? You know, I've been a criminal defense attorney for 26 years. And I've never had as much to deal with in a 72-hour period than in my entire 25, 26-year career. Because usually it's a loss. Like I might do something one day, then nothing to do for the next couple of days. Do something after that. But for the last 72 hours, actually more, it's been helter-skelter. What I mean by that is there's an, a grassroots activist organization called Up Against the Law Legal Collective. And they're like the frontline activists who either are in direct contact with the protesters or know somebody involved. In other words, they have their ear to the street. So of all the people who've been arrested in connection with what's been going on since Saturday, I'd say about 90% of them have gone through this group um, up against the law collective. In connection with that, I'm part of a group, it was actually three of us first lawyers that agreed to form a broad-based pro bono legal defense team. And when the three of us came together, we said, okay, we'd reach out to maybe five or 10 of the colleagues and represent maybe 100 people have been arrested. Man, that shit is up to probably about 1,000 now. Uh, the last count 
it was about 500, 600 people who had been arrested for minor offenses, uh, summary offenses, curfew violations, up to aggravated assaults, fighting with cops, burning up police vehicles, breaking into banks. So it's been helter-skelter nonstop. How have you been able to separate, or I don't know if you are able to separate your legal and professional manner with what you're feeling inside as an African-American man? Well, I couldn't catch up with the weed man, so we couldn't do it that. But I will, but I will say that um, it'll shock people, and I've never said this publicly, I am addicted to South Park and Family Guy. <laughs> favorite shows, South Park and Family Guy. So um, I might get up six, seven o'clock in the morning. I'm doing Zoom stuff. I'm doing WebEx stuff. I'm doing all of this video conference stuff. I'm e-filing legal documents. I'm having hearings. I got a big murder case in Cumberland County stemming from a, uh, a, a drug-related homicide that took place at Shippensburg University, and they're trying to move that case. So I've got hearings there, and then this bully thing come, came up. So I'm pretty much up by six or seven. And it's so funny, man, because I've been able to perfect the fake out. And what I mean by the fake out is I look like I'm all fly and everything with this custom-made shirt. But depending on where I am, I could have this shirt on three or four days in a row. And <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Sam, did you have that shit on yesterday? They wouldn't know it. Right. <laughs> one day. The DA is another day, judges another day. Plus, I could be wearing pants or might not be wearing pants. Nobody knows. I try to make sure I have this thing from the waist up. Um, all of me, man, they shit all over the floor. There's food. It's just craziness. Right. But I got this little mini studio here in my den to make it seem all professional. But getting back to your question was a great question. I'll get up maybe six or seven o'clock, do my fake out lawyer thing do this nonstop, and then usually around maybe 9, 10 p.m., I'm pretty much done. And now I'll get something to eat. I'll watch Family Guy. I'll watch South Park. I'll watch Netflix, and I'll fall asleep and get up 6, 7 o'clock the next morning and keep it going. Do it all over again. Yeah. So I want to I wanna say a, a quote. I don't, I don't remember if you said this or if this was something you wrote, but I think it's pretty fascinating in light of what's happened this past week. You said, with rare exception, I don't support the removal of statues or monuments of historically horrible racists. Well, this past week, Frank Rizzo came down in Philadelphia. So I want to get your two cents on that entire situation. I thought you guys were supposed to be irresponsible fake professionals. <laughs> <laughs> you but thought this was going to be like a, like a fun interview. Yeah. Yeah. We get super high and super serious. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you did because I just assume I've had several interviews since Sunday and none of the mainstream media asked me about that. And I'm mm. so glad. And my position is the same. I, when I said what I said, I said it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I really meant it because this is what I said. I said when you see stuff like the Rizzo statue, when see schools named after George Washington and people like that who now we know did some horrible things, my thing is let's not take it down. Let's expose them for what they really are. For example, tongue-in-cheek, but maybe seriously, I said let's keep the Rizzo statue up. But those nine Black Panthers 
that he strip searched, built statues around the Rizzo statue. So at the Rizzo statue, you would have nine half-naked Black Panthers. And mm. that would be like, what are these half-naked Black men doing there? So for me, it was subtraction by addition or addition by subtraction. So let's not, because, you know, when we think about horrible monsters throughout world history, we want to know what Hitler did. We want to know what Pol Pot did. We want to know what Idi Amin did. That's not to say that we should build monuments to them so we can expose them, no. But if there are monuments, I would love, instead of making this, I want my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to know who Frank Rizzo was. So if they walk past that statue like, oh, Grandpa Michael Cord told us that he was the police officer, he was the police commissioner, he was the mayor, and under his administration, Philadelphia became the first city in the country to be prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice for systemic police brutality. That was in 1979. I'm not talking about a city in Alabama, in Georgia, Mississippi. It was right here in Philadelphia. So it was almost tongue-in-cheek when I said it, but the real story is I want people to know. Don't get me wrong. I'm celebrating now that he's not there, but if the, the solution had been from the city, hey, we're not going to take it down, so what's your plan B? My plan B would have been all of the horrible shit that he did, build monuments around that. In regard to the George Washington High School, for example, tell the story about how he enslaved black, nine black people at America's first White House at Sixth and Market, right here in Philly. So I'm glad you did your research, and I wish more quote-unquote journalists do the same thing you do so I can expound upon that. But yes, I said it, I meant it, and I stand by it. You know, when I was in Berlin, that was the one thing I noticed. They're pretty open about it. They have stuff that you think you would have covered up back in the day from the Nazis and everything. And they leave a lot of monuments and reminders off of what was happening back yes. then. Absolutely. A friend of mine said something that really struck me. He said, uh, good luck getting the DNA of Rizzo out of the city. How do mm -hmm. we even begin to start having that conversation? Because as we are seeing, there's been so much pushback from what I perceive as the last gasp of that old Philadelphia, and they're coming out in droves. How do we deal with that? We deal with it with people like you and your two white colleagues. Mm -hmm. I mean, you all could be all white guys. You all could be all black guys. Y'all just flow like that. So if more of us could just flow like that, then we would get that. Now, I'm not naive to say that that's going to happen overnight because you look at Rizzo in the 60s and 70s. Well, Rizzo was to Philadelphia 20, 30, 40 years ago, what Donald Trump is to America today. Mm. Trump is Frank Rizzo on the national level. Mm. So we can say all we want about Hillary Clinton got four million more votes and got the popular vote, and that's all true. But at least 60 million Americans voted for Donald Trump knowing what he represents. So you can't really talk about getting the Rizzo DNA out of Philadelphia until you get the Trump DNA out of America. Mm. What happened? One of the things I always say is this. I don't really mind a person being racist. If the person wants to be racist and call me the N-word under his breath or talk to his friends about black people, or even burn a cross on his own property. 
that's fine. Just don't impose that shit on me. <laughs> In your head. You can be a racist among your people. You can become a dues-paying member of the KKK. Just keep that over there. Don't stop me from going to school that I want to go to, getting the job I want to get, doing the things I need to do. So I, I got to tell you, I mean, I don't really have a problem with racists. almost like somebody who got a disease. I don't care that you got a disease. Let's keep that shit over there. <laughs> Wear a mask. Put a mask on. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So anyway, that's the that's the long answer to your short question. Thank you. Well, that was that was that was a that was a um, Malcolm X line, right? Like he appreciated that the KKK was at least honest. Wasn't that something that he said? That at least I know yeah, where they stand. So I guess you are the real researcher among the three of you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that, is fair, that is a fair assessment. Uh, he yeah. loves history. Right? Loves yeah. history. <laughs> he finds stuff. So, yes. In fact, Malcolm did say that. Um, Malcolm acknowledged that people are going to think bad and be bad. Just keep that stuff over there. Just do that stuff amongst yourselves. So, yeah, in fact, I love to take credit for it, which is why I call myself Michael X in honor mm -hmm. of Malcolm X. So a lot of stuff you hear me saying, you're not supposed to know it came from Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so profound and so deep that I came up with. Yeah. Um, you know that. Oh, go. go ahead, please. I'm just saying, like nowadays, it's so hard for that. Keep that over there with social media and Facebook, and you just see no one keeps it over there. Where they throw it out there, and everyone can see it. So it's hard to ignore it or not let it get to you or not try to come back at it in some way. And you make a good point. And I look at it this way. I love it when I see racists exposed. And what I mean by that is now I know who you are. I'm really not concerned about them being racist. I just want to make sure that, for example, they don't have positions that can affect me. Mm -hmm. You're some poor white guy who lives in a trailer park you can say the N-word all day long. <laughs> the governor or the mayor right. or the CEO of some big bank, I want to know that. So right, right. I'm only concerned about racists who can impose that racism negatively upon black people. Again, mm -hmm. if you had your little racist crew and y'all doing y'all thing up in the mountains as hillbillies, go ahead, more power to you. Just don't be, because that's why people often say that Black people cannot be racist. Only white people can be racist. And they say that, and I say it because white people have the power. You know, I can call a white boy a racist name all day long, but as a systemic thing, I can't hold him back. But if I'm a white guy with a suit and tie who runs a bank, runs a school, runs a city, I can hold people down. A black person can be prejudiced, a black person can be discriminatory. A black person can be an asshole, but a black person can be a racist. Yeah. You just mentioned something. You said the people that run the city. How have you felt how the response has been with all this from Mayor Kenny, D.A. Krasner, because he did run as a progressive. Yes. We're seeing a lot of people get locked up for bullshit. What's your take on how they've responded to everything? Excellent question. And I, and I really mean that excellent question because, again, the mainstream serious media, they never ask me stuff like that. <laughs> they ask me the conventional thing, and I just give them the, the stage, the patent answer. <laughs> but I'm glad you asked because it gives me a chance to respond. I like Mayor Kenny 
personally. He and I know each other. We work together. We met with each other, confidential communications, all that kind of stuff. But I am so disappointed in him. Mm. So you all saw the social media post that Vince Fumo wrote about Kenny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Y'all didn't see that? A pussy and a liar and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he said, I I raised you better, Jimmy. Yes. Who said that? Vince Fumo. I believe Fumo. I believe Fumo because his story makes sense. And Fumo was the godfather of Philadelphia politics 25, 30, 40 years ago. And I know that people like uh, Kenny and others had to follow in his footsteps because you couldn't make it as a white Democrat in Philadelphia unless you kissed the ring of Vince Fumo. And what Fumo said made sense. He said that Kenny is now beating his chest about getting rid of the Rizzo statue. But back in the day when the statue was coming up and everybody was loving it, that Kenny was supporting all that. In fact, what Fumo said is that I never liked Ken, uh, Fumo never liked Rizzo, even though they're both Italians and from South Philly, just like all black people don't like each other, not all Italians <laughs> like each other. So Fumo and, and Kenny, they worked together, but at a certain point there was a split. And I know from my dealings with Kenny, I was meeting with him and talking with him about bringing the Rizzo statue down or doing something to let people know that he's opposed to that whole thing, whether it was the plan A of bringing the statue down or the plan B surrounding the statue with nine half-naked Black Panthers to expose what Rizzo was all about. But the problem is Kenny moved too slow. He said that they would try to work on it, then he said they would work on it, then they said they would, would get rid of it eventually. Well, my moderate approach to using the system to change the system didn't work. It was almost like the Dr. King thing. No disrespect to Dr. King, but he was more patient in his approach to social change. It wasn't until angry young black activists and angry young white activists went to the statue, spray painted, tried to use a chain to pull it down. <laughs> All of a sudden, Kenny, in the middle of the night, actually technically in the morning, 2 a.m., he gets rid of it. So when Fumo comes at Kenny for saying that, hey, Kenny, you beating your chest like you did something, you really didn't do anything. You had the chance to condemn Rizzo when, before you were in city council, while you were in city council, you didn't say shit. And now these angry young black people and angry young white people come along and force your hand, and then you beat your chest like you did something serious. So I applaud Fumo for being as direct and as gangster as he was, and I believe what he's saying about Kenny because it makes sense. I still like Kenny. I think he's a good guy, but he's not doing what needs to be done. The first thing you got to do is you got to speak in the language of the people you're talking to. So if I'm speaking to Latino people, I got to speak Spanish. If I go to France, I got to speak Spanish. <laughs> I got to make sure if I'm speaking to my Latino brothers and sisters, I've got a Latino man or woman with me. If I'm in France, I've got to have some homie from France standing there with me. So as soon as the unrest started, the first thing Kenny should have done is to reach out to young grassroots activists, black and white, 
and say, hey, I know you've been demonstrating against me about this, protesting about that, but the city's burning up. I don't want it to burn up. You don't want it to burn up. Tell me what can we do and have some young grassroots, angry black and white people to stand there with them and pretty much tell people to calm down a little bit. I said that and I mean that, but I got to tell you, without getting myself in trouble as a lawyer by publicly advocating violence <laughs> and deliberately and say what I'm going to say before I start yelling and screaming and get disbarred. Um, <laughs> Reverend Dr. Martin King Jr. said that a riot is the voice of the unheard. And that makes so much sense. And JFK, in fact, let me grab my notes from earlier. I was trying to be all moderate. Oh, oh, is this his peaceful revolution? With the professionals. Let me read you exactly what King said and exactly what JFK said. King said what I just stated. King said that a riot is the language of the unheard. And I thought about that, and it's so true because when young people connected with the MOVE organization and other people were asking the mayor to bring the Rizzo statue down, he wasn't hearing that. And then when the people engaged in riotous behavior, now they can be heard and the statue comes down. And then King, and then um, President JFK said in 1962, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Yep. And that so true. So the system needs to listen to people that it's been ignoring. You have to ask yourself, why is it that rich white people don't riot? Because they don't have to. <laughs> why is it that poor black and brown and poor white people do riot? Because their voice is not heard. So it's not that nobody wants to riot. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, hey, I'm going to fuck up. Let me just go out. Nobody says that. It's always so-called rioting is a symptom of a disease. If you take away the disease, then you don't have the symptom. If these people out there so-called looting, if they were actually people who got good educations, who got good jobs, they wouldn't be out there. I'm representing some of these people because, and this I think speaks volumes about this system, I was born and raised in North Philly, 20th in York. And I went to an under-resourced poor school called Pratt Arnold at 22nd and Dolphin. Somehow I lucked up in the third grade doing a citywide test and did very well. So what does this racist system do? They take me, little Michael Cord, out of that Pratt Arnold school in North Philly, and they put me in Masterman. And now that I'm in Masterman, I'm on my way to academic excellence. I'm on my way to college. I'm on my way to law school. But what happened to those poor black kids at Pratt Arnold? They didn't become, they didn't go to college. They didn't go to law school. Most of them are struggling, and many of them are the kind of people who feel the need to loot. And by the way, I only call it looting if you're breaking in to small mom and pop businesses that are uninsured. If you are going into banks, then I don't call it looting. I call it expropriating. Collateral, <laughs> collateral damage. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's exactly it. I, I want to ask you a, 
I want to ask you something along those lines that, that I've kind of been thinking about the past week a lot, and that is that a couple weeks ago we had what weren't quite riots but were pretty close when people were going to these state houses, and it was almost all Trump supporters, yes. and they were yes. pissed off, right? They were angry. Yes because they couldn't go back to work. And a lot of them had small mom and pops. Now I'm very anti-Trump. I'm, you know, these guys know I hate Trump as much as anybody, but in looking at this, at what we've seen this past week, I kind of started thinking like, what are they mad at? They're mad at the state. What are the people that are marching today mad at? They're mad at the state. And it got me thinking like, are we talking past each other a little bit? Like I know there's a lot of racist stuff involved here. That's very heavy stuff. But at the same time, I'm seeing people that are real freaking angry at the state, but because they're taking that anger out on each other, the state's kind of protected. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it certainly does make sense. I mean, for me, it's always, it's a matter of relativity. And what I mean by that is who has a harder time in America, a suburban white guy with a job that might be failing or a company that might be failing, or a poor black guy in the hood who never got the opportunity to get that company that might ultimately fail. So for me, yes, there are legitimate grievances on both sides, but one compared to the other pales in comparison. This is what I always say, and I'm glad you even posed that question, um, because people often accuse me of playing the race card. They say that every time something goes on, you're always going to race, always race, always race. And my first response is this. I play the race card because America dealt it to me from its racist debt when it enslaved my ancestors, engaged in sharecropping, convict leasing, Jim Crow, gerrymandering, redlining, all that kind of stuff. But beyond that, I say this. Okay, you accuse me of playing the race card so much, but ask yourself this question. If tomorrow you had to be a defendant in a criminal case and you could choose to be a white defendant or a black defendant, which would you select? It's three o'clock in the morning and you're a Temple University student and you're driving a Broad Street past master and lights and sirens from a police car trying to pull you over. And as that cop approaches you, you could be a white driver or a black driver. Which would you prefer to be? So yes, many of those white folks who are being um, attacked by the state, by the system, many of them do have legitimate grievances, but those grievances pale in comparison because all those black protesters would love to be in the shoes of those white protesters at the state capitol. And none of those white protesters at the state capitol would ever want to be in the shoes of those poor black people. So yes, it's all legitimate grievances, but some are more serious than others. And the final thing I'll say to that is that I also acknowledge that just as race is a major problem in this country, so is class. And there's an argument that class could be worse. Because I got to tell you, if I was a defendant in a criminal case, I already gave that analogy, but if I was defending the criminal case and I had to choose between being a rich black defendant and a poor white defendant, I choose that rich black guy all the time. So in many aspects of, Amer of the American system, 
class trumps race. But this country was founded on race coming out of slavery. So yes, poor white people have a beef. All black people have a beef. But poor black people have the biggest beef. Can I, I ask you? Ask you. Go ahead, Greg. Uh, I'll go after you. I just wanted to ask you, uh, Commissioner Outlaw. You know, we've been seeing some videos of some batons to the head. Um, do you think she's handling it as best she can? What would you do differently if you were her? Yeah, you know, it's not a whole lot that a commissioner can do about cops on the street. Just like it's not a whole lot that the general and the Pentagon can do about the privates on the ground. You can simply create policy and tell them to do this right and do that right and use your bully pulpit to try to make it happen. I would hope that she is a bit stronger in her language about condemning it. Now, she did condemn some things, for example, in Fishtown a couple of days ago. It was like an army of young white guys, middle-aged white guys with bats and sticks and clubs, and the police gave them a pass and let them do their thing. And she did condemn that in no uncertain terms. So under the circumstances, she's doing pretty much as much as she can under the circumstances. I think she needs to be a little more visible and vocal in condemning it, but it's even bigger than her. It's bigger than her because the FOP has strong political power in Philadelphia. Two quick things I want to say about that. Back in 1968, the FOP got a state law passed called Legislative Act 111 of 1968. And Legislative Act 111 of 1968 basically said this, hey, we're going to treat this FOP, this police union, unlike the teachers union, unlike the bus drivers union, unlike the, any other union, we're going to treat them like prima donnas. So if there's something that they're accused of doing wrong, we're not going to sanction them like we would teachers and bus drivers and other people. We're going to create something called, we're going to support something called the American Arbitration Association. It's long and convoluted, but it comes down to this. Instead of the police being sanctioned for misconduct like other employer, employees, they go through the American Arbitration Association. And for me to say that that association is biased in favor of the cops is an understatement. Since 1968, when the state law was passed, 90% of the claims against cops have been rejected. Even situations like back in the Puerto Rican Day Parade, when the big cop punched yeah, a woman in yeah, the videotape, yeah. he not only got his job back after the police commissioner fired him, but he got back pay. In 2015, seven cops were charged with outrageous crimes in federal court and fired by police officer Ramsey. They later got their jobs back. They later got $90,000 back pay, and some of them got promotions. So there are certain things that the commissioner can say, but until we change that state law out of Harrisburg, and, and very quickly, that state law allows for contracts between the city and the FOP every three years. The last one was June of 2017. That was supposed to end June of 2020. But because of COVID-19, it's been expanded. Long story short, the city should revoke the term of that contract and force the cops to be as liable as you or me if we do something wrong. 
is is what what is the role in that 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 uh, John McNesby plays the head of the FOP because he seems like a a, a just a horrible fucking little man. I I hate his face. <laughs> and well said. <laughs> um, he is the voice of the FOP, but believe it or not, he's not unique. The FOP everywhere acts like that because they're the union representative of the worker. So if you got a plumbing union, then the head of the plumbing union is going to try to cover for the plumber. If you're the head of the bus driver's union, you're going to try to cover for the bus driver. All that's good. But bus drivers and plumbers and teachers, they don't have a license to kill. Cops do. So when you see situations where people like the FOP head is just excusing everything, any even stuff you see on videotape, it's sad. I don't so much blame him for saying the stuff that he says and doing the stuff that he does. I blame the city for tolerating it and condoning it by signing these contracts every three years. I blame the state for allowing that 1968 Legislative Act 111 to stay the law of the land. So for me, he's just a bad, a horrible symptom of a horrendous disease. If we take away the disease of that legislative act, of that contract, then the symptom goes away. Yeah, so, so you know, it seems like a lot of what's happening is, is sort of general in nature. And I know that there's this movement to defund police, which I, I probably should know more about it, but to hear the words sounds almost like anarchy, uh, which I'm not a supporter of. Um, but I feel like there's got to be, you know, I, I feel like if we could get rid of the FOP, that would be something that would be a more rational, in my view, to make things better. Where do you fall in that line? Like, where do, what, what do you think about defunding police versus changing the current system? Man, you're going to cause me to lose my revolutionary <laughs> spirit. Because <laughs> what I'm getting ready to say is probably not what my comrades want to hear. But fuck it. <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> man, we can't defund the police. I'm a defense attorney. I've been doing this for 26 years. There are some dangerous motherfuckers out there. <laughs> some of them are my clients. Now, my role is to make sure that my clients are treated in court just like wealthy, white, white-collar criminals are treated. Now, I want to make sure that the arrest is done properly, the process is done properly, the preliminary hearing done properly, the pretrial proceedings done properly, the trial done properly, the sentencing done properly. I'm not there to necessarily get my client off. I'm there to guarantee him a fair trial. I'm there to make sure that every law that exists applies to him as a poor young man from the hood as it applies to a wealthy white guy from Radnor. So the idea, and I'm born and raised in North Philly. I teach at Temple, so I'm in the hood quite often. The idea, my grandmother needs cops. My aunt needs cops. My nephew needs cops to protect them from child molesters. So the idea of defunding the police, it sounds good, as revolutionary sloganeering, but in reality, it would not only cause anarchy, but the predators would have a field day. It's almost like if you 
let the lions, first of all, I hate the concept of zoos. I'm a vegan and I don't believe that any animal can be kidnapped from its <laughs> yeah. home and placed yeah, in Here we go. That it how, how do you know someone's a vegan? They tell you. <laughs> <laughs> they, tell you they tell you. We carry a batter around <laughs> over the head. Yeah. Sit next to you in a restaurant and tell poison the shit that you eat. So in all seriousness, I'm not, I'm one of those vegans that's not like that because I came to veganism when I was ready. Mm. Became a vegan, you couldn't tell me shit about a ham sandwich. <laughs> so my thing is to let people, you got to meet people where they are. Anyway, I got sidetracked by the vegan thing. Um, so my point is, instead of defunding the police, we should clearly not increase the funding. In fact, we should decrease the funding, but not defund them. Again, Mayor Kenny, who I supported and who I like as a friend, he slashed the budget a couple weeks ago on almost everything because money is tight. I get that. But he increased the budget for the police. So I'm like, how can you tell us that money's tight and it is, and you see the cops just going all over the country raping, robbing, murdering, and pillaging, and you're going to increase it. So to answer your great question, I do not believe in defunding the police. I certainly don't believe in increasing the funding. My position is to decrease the funding, maybe by about at least 20, 30, 40, maybe even by half. Again, I got to make sure that my grandparents and Elderly people in the hood are not victimized, and we need somebody to do that. The other thing I want to say very quickly is, yes, let's slash the funding for the police and also change the terms by which you can become a police officer. So not only do you have to go through the police academy, but you got to have some serious psychological training. Because once you get that gun, you got a badge and a gun and a license to kill. So it's got to be an enhanced psychological uh, requirement to become a cop. But it doesn't stop there. Every year you got to go through that. You know, police, in terms of the profession of being police officers, have the highest rate of domestic abuse than any other profession. Any other profession. So if you've beaten up your girlfriend or your wife at home, what do we think you're doing to strangers on the street? So once you put your hand on your girlfriend or your wife, you're done. You're gone. None of that arbitration, you're just gone. So quick answer to that long answer is decrease the funding, change the requirement of becoming a police officer, make them go through yearly psychological training. And the key thing, the key thing is this. In every police brutality lawsuit, that officer has to pay part of it out of his pocket. So person who's battered gets a million dollar judgment for, from the city. Well, the city might pay 900,000 and that remaining 100,000 comes out of that cop's salary, maybe $1,000 a month or $5,000 a year. But if that cop knows that he's going to have to pay out of his pocket part of that judgment, part of that settlement, he'll think twice. Do you think that do you think the defund thing is a starting point? Do you think that 
nobody's really going to completely defund cops because that's crazy, but that's a starting point so that you can work from there. Because that's honestly, that's almost a Trump tactic where he starts with something so far batshit crazy right that by the time he comes a little bit left, you feel like you had a compromise, but he really moved you right. Is this kind of the same sort of thing, but in the other direction? That Trump thing only works because the Democrats in Congress are pussies. Yeah, true, true. You know, because I, you know, I do only criminal cases, well, for the last 25, 26 years. But before that, a couple years before I got deep into criminal law, I used to do personal injury cases. And when I would get a case, for example, somebody would call me, they were in a car accident, and the other guy hit them and broke their arm. So I'd do some research to find it, okay, what kind of settlements have, let's say, 30-year-old full-time employees who got their arms broken and auto accidents, what's the going rate? How much do they get? I might find out that they got $50,000 for that kind of case. Okay, so when I pick up the phone to call the insurance adjuster to get compensation for my client, I know the case is worth about $50,000. I'm not going to ask for $5 million because they're going to say, you must better your goddamn mind. <laughs> $50,000 a case. Why are you even saying $5 million? That's so ridiculous. I'm going to take you seriously. But what I might ask for, if I know it's worth $50,000, I might ask for $200,000. And then they'll offer $10,000. Then I'll cut it down to $150,000. And they'll offer $15,000. By this time it's over, I got about thirty dollars or $40,000. And that's reasonable as a settlement as opposed to waiting a year or two for a lawsuit. So my point is there probably are some people who are talking about defunding seriously, but no disrespect to those people, that's politically naive because in order to be taken seriously in negotiations, you got to make a reasonable offer. Like I said, if my client's case is worth 50000 and I ask for $5 million, they're not going to take me seriously. So I shouldn't go and ask you for defunding what I might do, and I probably shouldn't say this publicly because it'll show my hand when I sit down with the powers that be. But let's say I come in saying that, okay, I'm not asking for defunding, but I'm asking that 75% of their current budget be slashed. 75%. And if I ask that 75% be slashed, I'm doing my research. I'm checking, I'm dotting the I's and crossing the T's to find it. okay, how many officers do you need in Philadelphia? If you got, let's say, 6,000, I'm looking at how large Philadelphia is. I'm looking at how big the population is. I'm looking at how much crime we got. And I'm saying, calculating all this, we don't need 6,000 cops. We can do an effective job with, say, 4,500 cops. Right, right. We don't need tanks as if we're some military army. So right. we send all that shit back to Washington. So if I ask for a slashing of 75%, I'm presenting documentation to prove that they can function with the remaining 25%. But the other thing I got to realize is this, and this is what some of my revolutionary comrades might not realize, that if you antagonize your opponent too much, they'll just say, fuck it and walk away. And what I mean by that is, if you slash the budget too much, what incentive does the cop have to do have to do his job? Yeah. So now he gets a 911 call and says, damn, instead of me making $60,000 a year, they slashed my salary to $30,000 a year. 
So now I get this 911 call for a rape taking place at 20th and York in Michael Kors old neighborhood. I'm not going out there for that. So we got to be practical. We got to be pragmatic. We got to be reasonable. It's important to yell and scream, but the yelling and screaming, I always say this, the yelling and screaming gets you to the table, but facts and figures and computation gets you through the negotiation. Because mm. if you, you can yell and scream all day long, but then once you sit down to negotiate, what are you talking about? Where'd your information come from? Do you have more than yelling and screaming? So yeah, I wouldn't ask again for a complete defunding, but I ask for a drastic cut and be able to explain what I mean by that. And that 75% cut, I might compromise because I'm asking for 75% cut. They're asking for a 75% increase. We're going back and forth at the end of the day, it's I'm, I'm not accepting anything less than a cut. It's got to be a cut. The only question is, by what percentage? Right. And I like what you said about the the, the, the demilitarization. Uh, you know yes. what I'm trying to say. Like, they don't exactly. need fucking, like, tanks and all that other. That's the shit that I think yeah. a lot of people, when they show up to something that's pretty simple or minor, looking like they're about to go into Iraq. I think that's the yeah. stuff that people are talking about when they're talking about the defunding. It just feels like they, they have, you know, you have these towns in America with like, you know, 400 people, but the police department has fucking tanks and, and, yes. and shit like that. That's, you know what I mean? point. that's real. That's real. There are small towns that have an arsenal, literally an arsenal of military equipment that they have never used and never will use. Right. That shit is for foreign invasions. It's <laughs> hippie kid yelling, <laughs> carrying a sign. Yeah, well, yeah. It really acts like an agitator because when I was out there Saturday, I was out there right around the time they were going at it on the Rizzo statue. And everything was chill for the most part until they brought the military vehicle. And yes. people yes. really, it really, it works as an agitator. Everyone's, the tension just rose. People started throwing stuff at it. And, you know, that, that's a twofold issue. I'm so glad you brought that because, yes, a lot of times when clients like mine, the legitimate protest, legitimate activists, they just get enraged when they see these tanks and this military stuff. So that ratchets them up even more. It gets them their blood boiling even more. And now they want to do something that otherwise wouldn't do. They might not throw a rock at a cop standing next to the statue, but they might will throw a rock next to a tank that's next to the statue. That makes sense. And speaking of that, mm -hmm. in addition to the system causing unnecessary shit, there have been a lot of what I call agent provocateurs. Mm -hmm. been, and for whatever reason, they've been described as young white guys wearing all black with backpacks. And, in, and I've seen some. And they're the first to start Tearing up shit. I posted on my Facebook page, you know, Bloods and the Crips, they got this bad reputation. And a lot of it is well-deserved because we know Bloods and Crips ain't Boy Scouts. But I posted something, I shared something where these young white guys, anarchists or whoever they were, dressed in all black, with their black backpack, black baseball cap, they were going through South Central LA near Compton, just breaking up shit. And about three or four Crips confronted them, and I just knew they was going to beat these white boys down. <laughs> please don't, please don't, because you can see, you can tell when somebody is shook. 
So when the Crips came in, like, who the fuck are you? What are you doing in this neighborhood? You breaking up shit. We live here. This is where we lay our head. You breaking up all of a sudden, then you're leaving to go back to wherever you live. It was so bad. You talking about somebody bitching up. But I got to say, <laughs> if it's time to bitch up, that was the time. And those <laughs> bitched up, they were saying, yes, they literally said, yes, sir. <laughs> the Crips just, they just wanted a reason to just stomp these guys. It's like, look at me the wrong way, it's going to be a beatdown. Like I said, if there was ever a time to bitch up, those guys bitched up, they apologized, they called the Crips, sir, and they got the hell out of there. But that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the agent provocateurs, just tearing up stuff for no reason other than tearing stuff up. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I wanted to ask you about because, you know, I know a, a big movement right now is, you know, putting money toward bailing people out that are marching, right? Well, I want to do that, but I don't want to bail out the dude in the black t-shirt and the black pants that's going to run back out and set a building on fire. So that's the thing that's kind of been making me nervous about donating to something like that. And I don't really know how it works, to be honest with you. And, you know, again, th these are really, and I, I'm not pandering to you. I mean, these are really good questions. The way you can tell that you pose a good question is I'll start talking shit for like five seconds to get my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to like come back with a I'm like, God damn it, why did he ask me this shit? I'm trying to figure out the answer in my head. Like I'm would you do it right now? You doing that right now? Exactly. In all seriousness, you're right. Let me tell you why you're right. You're right because I agree with you. So if I agree <laughs> with you, you're right. Let me give you an example without disclosing any confidentiality. A group of lawyers were all together on representing people who've been arrested. That was that pro bono legal defense thing. But I've got to tell you, and I can repeat it. I'm not going to repeat what they said, but I'll repeat what I said to them. I said, look, man, I'm here to represent people who are out there protesting consistent with the First Amendment right to assemble, right to petition, and right to speak. And if they're out there holding signs and yelling and screaming about Black Lives Matter and even yelling about fuck the police and getting in cops' face and refusing to move and even a scuff with the cops, I'm there with you for that. But if you're going through 52nd and Market and looting small mom and pop uninsured businesses, then fuck you. I'm just not feeling that. The only problem with that is this. How do I know that you were really looting that small black mom and pop shop at 52nd and Market or were you just a young black guy in a hoodie who was walking by and the cops snatched you up? Right. So I don't really know, but I did say this. If I see by way of videotape evidence that you're looting small business in the hood, I can see it with my own eyes. You got to get another lawyer because I'm just not representing you. The role of a defense attorney is to zealously advocate his client's interest. I can't zealously advocate for you if I know you put a small black business, small white business, small Latino business, uninsured out of business because they're just as poor as you. So you're taking food out of their mouth, food that they can't afford because they don't have any money because your dumb ass just destroyed their business. So again, for all looting charges, 
I got to see videotape evidence that it wasn't you. All First Amendment arrests, all curfew violations, all disorderly conduct, all that stuff, whether you did it or didn't do it, I got you. But if even possibly accused of burning up some police cars or breaking into the bank, I got you on that. But if you are victimizing small, uninsured businesses, you got to get another lawyer. Let me ask, um, you know, with the protests and all that other stuff, it feels like, you know, the original reason and, and, and movement and energy behind it is protesting and putting an end to police brutality. And it feels like the response has been the most police brutality. So it feels like just a never ending song and dance. How does this end and where do we go from here? Because that's really the question I think everyone wants to know. Even if you're not on the side of right, you want to know when this is over, where does it go from here? How do we change it? Because it doesn't seem to... Do, are you seeing an impact? Are you seeing people just running in circles? I think that most of America is not bad. In other words, most people are not foaming at the mouth racist. They might be prejudiced. They might be bigoted but they're not going to lynch you. They're not going to beat you down. They're not going to condone a white cop using his knee to strangle an unarmed, handcuffed black man for 10 minutes. The average white person is not going to condone that. They might condone some other stuff, but not that. So what we need to do is the so-called silent majority, because most people, most people don't vote. Most people don't sign petitions. Most people don't get involved in day-to-day -day political stuff. And I understand that. They got lives to live. They got jobs. They got bills to pay. So they can't really be focused on that extra stuff. But it's not until the silent majority, which I would say is most of America, it's not until that silent majority speaks up. Because you look at, for example, the Trump administration. They're only in power because of the 60 million people that voted for them. So there's almost 300 million people that didn't vote for them. So we need the people who either sympathize with the oppressed groups in society or people who don't condone the bad stuff. Until most of us speak up, the majority, then the evil, wicked, racist minority will continue to do what it's doing. I mean, you look at this. The same America that elected Trump is the same America that elected Barack Obama twice. What is that about? So more people, especially young people, need to speak up. And if more people speak up and more young people speak up, we can move this thing along. As long as we keep it in the hands of the small, evil, racist, bigoted minority, then we're going to keep getting what we've got. And again, there are some white folks who are racist, but they're not going to lynch you. And they're not going to condone the brutal brutality. They might not want you to live in their neighborhood, but they also, that's almost like, like Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln was a racist. Abe Lincoln said that black people shouldn't be able to vote, black people shouldn't be able to run for office, and black people shouldn't be um, on juries. Abe Lincoln said that. But he also said that black people shouldn't be enslaved. So I'm like, okay, Abe, that's all I need from you. 
Hey, before I mean before you, uh, we get out of here, I wanted to ask you for for two white nerdy guys like me and Johnny or other folks like us, like how can we best be most supportive to the movement and the cause that's going on right now? That's an excellent question. The answer is often white folks will think that they're doing the right thing by coming into the hood to work as teachers, come into the hood as social workers, come to black churches and commune with black people. All that's good, but that's secondary. The primary thing is, you know the racist assholes in your community, in your fraternity, on the job, at your church, at your synagogue. You know who they are. You know your mom and pop, especially grandmom and grandpa, got these racist ideas. So before coming to black people and working with black people to change the system, you got to talk to that white coworker. You got to talk to that white fraternity brother. You got to talk to that white church member. There's so many black organizations that can say, hey, white folks, you need to contribute to the um, NAACP, to the Urban League, to stuff like that. And that's all good. But again, it's all about white people converting white people. There was, I don't know if it was true in the Malcolm X movie by Spike Lee, but it worked for dramatic effect. Malcolm was at an Ivy League school speaking. And at the end of his speech, a young white girl came up to him and said, Malcolm, Malcolm, what can I do to help black people? Malcolm looked at nothing. He said nothing. And that was real. Because don't come to me, Malcolm, asking me what to do. Talk to your brother. Talk to your sister, your neighbor, fellow students. That's the answer. Good white people can talk to bad white people. Because black people can't get the ear of bad white people. But good white people can get the ear of bad white people because y'all work together. Plus, just like all black people know each other. We all know each other. <laughs> so you're telling us we got to have that terrible holiday conversation everyone tries yes. to avoid. That's it. The next That's time the you guys have your meeting, you got to, you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> right. Y'all had your white meeting. Greg, next week, speak up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when Reef and I leave, y'all can come to our meeting and do your thing. <laughs> I want to I want to ask you uh, I want to ask you real quick about uh, leverage because right now I feel like um, Black Lives Matter has a lot of it and I feel like there's going to be ten thousand more people tomorrow. But they what 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 should the list of demands be and when should yes. they be made? The first thing we need to do is to build a broad-based coalition now. And all honestly, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. And what I mean by that is the Black Lives Matter activists are more confrontational. And that's a good thing. But then you've got the NAACP and the Urban League do great work for Black people, but they're more moderate. Either the younger, more vocal Black Lives Matter activists got to reach out to the NAACPs or the NAACP's got to reach out to young people. Until that happens, until we reach that broad coalition, we're going to get piecemeal solutions. And once these coalitions come together, what we got to do is this, and I always tell people, this is the key thing. It's all about unity without uniformity. When I say unity without uniformity, it's almost like a football game, an all-star game where you might have somebody from Dallas and somebody from the Eagles, somebody else from that division 
playing the other all-star team. So these teams, these all-star teams, they got their own jerseys on. Dallas got theirs on, Eagles got theirs on, but they're on the same all-star team, and together they're trying to score that touchdown. Now, one team might want to pass. One people, one team might want to run. One might want to try uh, a trick play. Whatever tactic they got doesn't matter. They all agree that we got to score this touchdown. So it's all about unity without uniformity. So when Black Lives Matter and the more moderate NAACP and Urban League come together, we got to find out what's that touchdown. And that touchdown, first and foremost, is economics. And by economics, I mean jobs, job training, and financed education. So you provide people with jobs, you provide people with job training, and you pay for a good education. That's the solution. So I think we can all agree upon that. And once we get that, why is it that wealthy white people don't protest police brutality? Because they don't get beaten by right. police. Why is it that wealthy black people don't protest police brutality to a large extent? Because they don't get beaten. So once black people get, it, get economically stable, we're in a position to use that economic stability and leverage it politically and socially and educationally and all that. So it's all about uplifting us economically and we do that in a number of ways. That help with everything, criminal justice system, education, health disparities. It's all about the money and the capitalist society. Nice. All right. We want to me as a diehard socialist. <laughs> Are you are you still hoping? Are are you still hoping for that, or are you are you kind of uh, thinking that we're still going to have to make this work within a capitalist system? Um, yes, I mean, you know, my socialist colleagues, we all talk about revolution today, revolution tomorrow in America, but that ain't going to happen in this country because this country was built on capitalism. So what we have to do is a type of capitalism that creates a solid safety net. And what I mean by that is there right now there is socialism to a certain extent in America. Whether you want to call it social security, whether you want to call it Medicare, Medicaid, public housing, whatever. So America is never going to change as a capitalist pig monster. It's never going to change. But what we socialists can do is to strengthen the social programs so that people always have housing, health, education, and employment, even in a capitalist society. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's take it to the blunt. We're going to get you with some uh, real rapid fire questions, uh, rapid fire answers. All right. So uh, first up, uh, what is your workout song? Um, fuck the police. Seriously. <laughs> 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 who was an ideal guest for Hip Hop 101 that you haven't had yet? Kendrick Lamar. What is a song that depicts your current mood? Um, God bless America, but replace blessed with damn. Mm. Um, what was your least favorite subject in school? No question, math. No okay. question. Mm -hmm. um, what is it? What is your preferred method of smoking? Um, hypothetically, if I did smoke, 
It's got to be the old school, top paper and do your thing. <laughs> top paper. <laughs> uh, favorite South Park character and why? Um, good question. Oh, the answer, clearly, token. Let's go. Let's- <laughs> <laughs> why not even ask? Yeah. <laughs> Johnny froze. John- oh. uh, when you get out of the bath, when you get out of the shower, are you a robe or a towel guy? Um, definitely a robe or nothing. Just a God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Who is a uh, a black activist? We all know about the you know Malcolm and Martin. Who's the black activist that you don't feel gets enough credit that people need to research more? Clearly, Colin Kaepernick, because people just look at him as some football player who just took a knee. It's much bigger than that. So learn the story of Colin, and you'll learn the story of racism in America. Great question. That's a clear, quick answer. Hmm. If uh, you if you had to replace the Rizzo statue with another statue, what would it be? Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote the Philadelphia Negro, lived in South Philly, and one of the greatest intellects in 20th century America. 20th I, ask, I ask everybody this question. How do you make a relationship work? I know short, short, a- short and sweet, brother Ford. Short and um, sweet. <laughs> honesty. Um, is Tom Hanks? I'm, oh. I'm new to the honesty thing, but it's getting there. How's it? How's it working out? A very well, believe it or not. You know, um, well, I don't want to get in trouble because the public sees this, but it's working out well. Doing the right thing for the first time in my life, and that's real. Nice. Word, word. Um, is, is Tom Hanks overrated as an actor? <clears throat> no, Tom Hanks is, is good. I mean, I've never seen a film where he did a poor job. He's always man. excellent in every film. So yeah, Tom Hanks, the man. You're losing what? points with the comrades. <laughs> what, is your, what is your late night comfort food? Um, you gave me a chance to talk about my veganism. No doubt about it. Veggie burgers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnny's popping back in. Um, if you had a last meal, what would it be? Um, it would be brown rice, broccoli, and turf- tofu burgers. <laughs> Go ahead, Johnny. Finish it up, man. You yeah, get yeah. the last tick to do two back to back. We're done. <laughs> uh, all right. What's your uh, what 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 band? Any band, living or dead? Who are you hiring for your birthday party? People would be surprised to hear it. The answer is the Clash. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, you were, re- you were revolutionary. That's revolutionary. They were revolutionary. I'm a hippie white boy when it comes to the crap, the clash. Uh-huh. <laughs> the clash, the white public enemy with instruments. That's fair. Go ahead, Johnny. Nice. Take us home. Nice. Um, let's see. What decade? Uh, no, what would, uh, let's see. What would your wrestling theme music be? Um, no doubt. Fight the power. Hmm. Right on. Okay. Nice. Nice. That's a good, good, good phrase to end the whole show on. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Corey. All right. Well, let's thank everybody for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you Thanks all, so gentlemen. This was great. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Do you want to? Do you want to plug your socials or where people can yeah, reach yeah. you? I love it. Thank you very much. Couple things. One, catch me on Facebook. Does anybody under fifty years old use Facebook anymore? I no. don't know. But I'm trying to fifty. <laughs> <laughs> they tuning in. 
Facebook, <laughs> right. Twitter, Instagram. That other stuff, I have no idea. Under Michael Cord, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-O-A-R-D. And also, I do a radio show, the Radio Courtroom, WRD, 96.1 FM. But social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that's the best way to check me out. So like, if I get, if I get pinched at 3 a.m., I send you a direct message on Instagram, we're good? That's exactly it. And believe it or not, that happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, man. Gentlemen, I enjoyed this. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on. Just the sound of Philadelphia. Yo, yo. Welcome to the home of brotherly love. Brothers covered in blood. The man's office is covered in bugs. The youth dreams cut short. Sweat.